still learned a lot, and God still used those times. But I praise God. I want to reiterate how much I'm so thankful um, for the work of all who worked at VBS and who were a part of VBS. Thank the Lord for their, um, their desiring to be with our young people. That's a very special thing, and we shouldn't take that for granted, and we praise the Lord indeed for that. As Scott mentioned, um, VBS, uh, much of what we looked at in VBS is covered in this passage. So for that, I'm not uh, going to spend too much time on this section. Next week, we'll look at it in its full entirety. But there's a couple of comments I do want to make. Uh, turn to the book of Romans chapter 8. We're going to look at verse number 5 and 8. And let me uh, say something. Last week, we talked about uh, one of the reasons why we look at the book of Romans was because the book of Romans, particularly chapter 8, has so many gospel themes um, that, that for us as God's people, to refresh ourselves and remind ourselves of that, and then as we go into the world, to take those themes into the world and speak as Paul does, unashamedly, boldly, proudly, um, about what the Bible has to say. And the first one we looked at is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you can go out into the world and proclaim your salvation boldly because you stand uncondemned by God. And that's a glorious reality, and there are many other people out there. They need that message of, con of no condemnation because they feel the condemnation that's in the world. And we as God's people need to be reminded of that. We need not be ashamed of that. And today we're going to be looking at the Christian mind. I also encourage you that we're not here to try and see if you can memorize Romans chapter 8. I know it's a tall task. I'm not saying that, you know, I know some of us have learning challenges and we can't memorize the whole thing. But for those of us that can and those of us that are able, why don't you give it a good faded effort? Um, there is something about memorizing the word of God that cements these truths into our heart. And all of us inside here today would be good to try, if we are able to, memorize Romans 8. I certainly don't want to bind your conscience on that. I know some of you, it is a challenge. But for those of us that think we can do it, why don't we pursue it? And uh, at the end of our time together, at the end of about seven, eight weeks, we'll be able uh, to recite it. And also, I know some of you use different translations, and that's okay, too. That's okay. All right, Romans chapter 8. We're going to read from verse 1 through 8 for the sake of time, and then we'll dive in. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it is not 
for it does not submit to the law of God. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as a flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fade, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be proclaimed unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, thank you today for um, the great fruit that came out of VBS. Thank you for those of us that here that get to witness that. Thank you for um, just what you're doing in this church. Holy Spirit, you are here and you are doing a work. And I'm thankful that it's in spite of us. Be with us now as we study this passage for a brief moment. Bless us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice with me in verse number five through eight, we have a contrast. And it's, because, and it's the contrast between the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit. Now, sometimes when we talk about biblical truth, it's always helpful to frame the truth so we understand the significance of it. If I just got up here and start telling you about the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit, what could be lost of, uh, on you is how important this truth is. And so let me frame it for us just a little bit. One of the unique joys I have as a pastor is holding and baptizing cute little babies. And good for us, we have a bumper crop coming up. Uh, watch out if you're married without children. Uh, there's something in the CVBC water. Because we have like six or seven children. Well, recently, this past week, I had the privilege of holding and praying over the shaver's new little one. Her name is Ruthanna. Precious, wonderful, beautiful little girl. And as I held this baby in my arms, I do something that I always do, and I pray over the little baby. And there was a point in the prayer, I said these words, and chances are, if you've ever prayed for a young child, if you ever prayed over a young child, you've said these words yourself. Even as a parent, I know there are pastors in here, I know there are different people in here. You prayed this prayer, and here's the prayer that you prayed. Lord, may this child not know a day without knowing you as Lord and Savior. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever prayed that prayer? Of course. All of us have. We've prayed that prayer for children. Lord, let this little one not know a day they do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior. It's a powerful prayer. That's why we say it. We don't say it out of obligation. We don't say it because that's the Christian thing to do. We don't say it because that's like the good thing to do while the parents are listening. No, we say this because we know that this prayer is powerful prayer. Now, let me pause for a moment and ask you this question. What do you think that prayer means? What do you think that prayer means? What do you think we're asking for? That this child not know a day that they do not know, know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior. What are we asking for? And what we're asking for principally is this. That this child understands very early what it means to be in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And the reason why that's important to each and every one of us inside here today is because we know the vast chasm that exists between the mind that knows Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior 
and the mind that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior. Right now, as we're sitting here today, we know the difference between darkness and light. A mind that's in darkness and a mind that's in light. There are many of us inside here today, we know that personally. Like you, I have a testimony in which I remember clearly being in darkness. There was about a year and a half to two years of my life, I called it the year of darkness. I had a journal, and I remember writing in it, this is the season of darkness. Where I was depressed, where I, learned, where I drank more than I should, did drugs more than I should. I believed all sorts of things. I tattooed my entire, I tattooed parts of my body that none of you will see because I keep them hidden. But it was the season of darkness for a reason. It was a time in my life where I could not see the light of the glorious gospel. And then one day, a young lady invited me to church and I went in. And I saw Jesus for who he was. And it was almost as if someone literally turned on the light. And I could see. Now, there's some of you, that's not your testimony. And praise the Lord, because that prayer of not knowing a day that you do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior is effective in your life. And praise God it was effective in your life. Praise God. Because I can tell you, I have some memories I wish I didn't have. But I'm here to tell you a day, today that one of the reasons why we do VBS, one of the reasons why we teach young people, one of the reasons why in this church we spend so much time educating young people about who Jesus is is because we want them to know who Christ is from an early age so they wouldn't have to know a time where they didn't know Jesus. I want you to let that sink in. Because that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul isn't spitting Christianese. He's not splitting hairs here. He's talking about the very nature of our mind. Is your mind completely given over to Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior? Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in darkness? That's the contrast between the, uh, that's before us today. And I just want to go through it real quickly because Paul makes it incredibly plain. And you, might be, you might be sitting down here today and you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, man, uh, this is going to be a little extreme. Well, the passage is extreme. Hey, listen, I, you know, there was a time in my life where I would never stand up here and talk about my past. You know why? Because I was ashamed. I'm a pastor. You mean to tell me I did all of those things in my past? But the reason why I feel led to talk about it today is because the stakes are high. We live in a world today permeated by darkness. And our young people need to know that there's a cost. There's a cost. There's a real cost to living according to the flesh. And there's real blessing living accordance with the spirit. Now, I'm not going to be crude today. I'm not going to be indecent. But I'm going to be plain spoken. 
Because all of us in here today need to be reminded of the powerful reality of Scripture, that ideas have consequences. And that's what Paul is doing here today. Now, this might seem like a non sequitur. Paul talks about no condemnation, and then all of a sudden he talks about the mind of the flesh versus the mind of the spirit. But this is not a non sequitur. This flows out of the reality of our justification. Paul is saying here in verse 1 through 4, if you have been justified, if you have been redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you name the name of Christ, if you love Jesus and you walk according uh, to what Jesus tells us in prayer and in fellowship with him, you have the mind of the Spirit. But if you don't, you have the mind of the Spirit. Of the flesh. And notice the contrast beginning in verse number five. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now, what is he talking about here? Simply put, is this when he talks about the flesh, he is talking about the part of us, not the physical part of us, but the immaterial part of us that is infused with selfish desire and selfish ambition. That's what he's talking about. It's a way of describing life without God. And that person who lives in accordance with the flesh lives with self-will instead of God's will. It lives for self-glory instead of God's glory. Here's the big one. It lives lives for self-gratification instead of pleasing and doing what God calls us to do. It lives for self-righteousness instead of trusting in the righteousness of God. Self-sufficiency instead of trusting and depending completely on Christ. I love how one scholar put it. It's those, those that live in the flesh live for the trinity of me, myself, and I instead of the trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the contrast. Second thing I want to point out about verse 5 As Paul says, if you notice and you read through the text, he spends the majority of the time talking about the sins of the flesh. And the reason why he spends the majority uh, majority of time talking about the mind of the flesh is because this is the default setting of each and every one of our minds inside here today. When I held that little baby in my hands this past week, I was holding a beautiful, innocent child But the default nature of that child's mind is that it's fleshly, that it will live for self. That's why it's so difficult to bend our children's nature, because they're hardwired for the flesh. They're hardwired that way. Now, notice what Paul says in verse number six, and I told you I'm going to move quickly through this. Because there are certain things in here I just want to hit. Notice Paul says in verse number 6, the actual, he he describes the actual effect of having that mindset in verse number 5. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Let that sink in for a moment. He says it's death. And then later on in verse number uh, 7, he says that it's enmity or hostile towards God. Then it says it cannot... Please, God. Notice the language that Paul uses. He's talking about death. Now, he's not talking about physical death, but remember the law of time mentioned. When's the first time death mentioned in the Bible? Well, it was in the garden with Adam and Eve. 
And the Bible says that when they died, they died spiritually, they died emotionally. They suffered death on so many different levels. And that led to a hostility toward God. Beloved, it's a kind of living death, if I could say it that way. To live in accordance with the flesh, to live in accordance for selfish desires and ambition, Paul says it's to live a living death in which you're wrapped up and focused only on yourself. And many of us know people like that. Now let me pause and say something real quickly. All of us have people in our lives, unbelievers. They do not believe in the Lord. And to some degree, we might say that this mindset that Paul describes, those that set their minds on the flesh is death, that doesn't describe them. I haven't, uh, Theresa and I, we, uh, at least Theresa has an uncle like that. We believe basically the same things. I mean, he's the nicest guy you could ever meet. He's friendly, uh, but he's an unbeliever. There are some of you inside here today, some of you young people, you have friends in school, and you might say, well, Pastor Dennis, I have friends in school who are good people, nice people. They're great. They're kind. They're some of the nicest people I know, but they don't believe in God. How can we say that they're enemies of God? How can we say that they're living in death? If anything, they're flourishing. Some of you have coworkers like that. Some of your best co-workers are unbelievers. I mean, they, they will give you the shirt off their back. They will do anything you ask them to do, except they don't believe in God. And we ask ourselves the question, how is it possible that Paul could say that these people who set their minds on the flesh, that, are, uh, that these people are hostile toward God, or these people are headed towards death? How can we say that? Well, the reason why we can say that is this. The greatest effect of sin isn't the bad things that happen to us. The greatest effect of sin is alienation from God. Write that down and remember that. See, when I was growing up as a little boy, this is how I was taught the gospel and bad things. You know, I was told that if you drink, You'll get drunk, you'll drive a car, and you die. And then I was taught if you smoke, you get lung cancer, and then you, yes. And if you have sex before you get married, you get an STD, and then you'll, everything ended in death. That was the consequence of sin. Now, as believers, we know that we need to drink responsibly, smoke responsibly and don't have sex before we get married. That's not the point that I'm trying to make here. The point I'm trying to make here is simply this. The ultimate awful thing that happens to us as a result of sin is alienation from God, not what that sin will actually do to us. If we start telling people principally that the reason why they shouldn't sin is prevent bad things from happening to them, then we've misunderstood the gospel. You, know, you notice in this passage, Paul doesn't go through a list of sins. He does that elsewhere. Because Paul's primary point isn't the fruit of sin, it's the root of sin. And the root of every sin is rebellion against a holy 
and righteous God. Mark that down and believe that. Because you will always meet people in your life that seem to run counter to the plain teaching of God's word. You'll always meet a nice atheist, a great atheist, an amazing atheist. And then you start to think, well, was Paul wrong? No, he's not wrong. The greatest impact of sin isn't what happens physically to the sinner. The greatest impact of sin is that they will be alienated from the very presence and the life-giving power of God. That's why Paul says, by contrast, in verse number, se- uh, in verse number 6, but to set your mind on the spirit is what? Life and peace. It's life-giving. It's life-giving. It doesn't matter that you have a friend who's nice and kind and moral. Because the gospel isn't about moralism. The gospel principally is, are you connected to God through faith and belief? Are you disconnected from God? Now, this is important for this one reason. Me and Theresa faithfully pray for her uncle that he might come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior. We pray fervently and often, and when we're around him, we tell him about the gospel. We don't shove it down his throat. We don't make light of it. But the fact of the matter is, we do try and give him the gospel because we understand that he is a walking dead. Beloved, hear me today. All of us have people in our lives that are alienated from Jesus Christ. And they're nice as can be, sweet as can be, as giving as can be. But yet they're still alienated from a holy God. Their minds are still darkened by sin. And according to this, they do not have peace. That's the reality of the gospel. Our gospel that we proclaim isn't about doing good and nice and moral things. It's about us becoming more like Jesus Christ. I love what H.B. Charles said. He said, it is the will of God to have the spirit of God use the word of God to make us more like the son of God. That's the goal of the gospel. It's to change our minds to where We are more like Jesus Christ. Now, lastly, I want us to see that the Holy Spirit makes all the difference. Notice in this contrast, we have a contrast between what we're hardwired for, the flesh, and what God wants us to be, the spirit. And the whole point of the contrast is to point out that it takes a lot of power to take us out of one realm and into the next. When I was growing up, I used to love watching infomercials. Anybody watch infomercials? Now, a good infomercial, you have on one side a dark pan and then another dark pan. And, you know, the one that, that, you know, he wasn't trying to sell you, he would say, look, that pan did nothing. That, that, uh, whatever that cleaner was did nothing. But look over here, right? The cleaner that he wants to sell us has miraculously transformed the other pan. And then he says, this one has the power to move dirt, and this one doesn't. 
This one makes it completely clean, but this one doesn't. This one is what you want to buy. This one you want to throw into the trash. And that's what Paul is saying here. Oh, beloved, one of the most glorious realities of the Holy Spirit is that only the Holy Spirit has the power to transform the life of man. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel for, finish it, it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. When Jesus Christ was leaving the earth, what did he say? All what? Power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. Notice in both cases there's a correlation between the power of God and the hearts and minds of man. Paul says it is the power of God ultimately that will change man. Jesus said it is his power ultimately that causes us to go and make disciples. You cannot change the heart and mind of any individual without the power of God. Parents, I'm talking to you, particularly. Education won't do it. Simply even bringing them to church, though this is the place for them, simply will not do it. We need to pray daily and often that the power of God is present in order to change the hearts and the minds of our children. And I want you to see something else that's very powerful in this text. Notice in verse number 8, Paul talks about a further fruit of the mind, of the, of the flesh. And it says, those, are, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who live selfishly, those who live without God, have desires that are completely contrary to the will of God, and therefore it cannot please God. You let that sink in for a moment. You know, one of the things that the Bible talks often about is pleasing God and doing what's pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. That cannot be done simply by ourselves. It must be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I, I, from time to time, I love reading through the Sermon on the Mount. You know why? It's so countercultural. Have you ever tried to live out the Sermon on the Mount just for a week? You cannot do it. When Jesus came to earth, he set down the most countercultural set of principles that are so high and so lofty for those who are a part of this kingdom that the only possible way for us to do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to the things that Jesus said. Jesus talks about giving in the Sermon of the, on the Mount. Now, there are some of you sitting here and say, well, Pastor Dennis, I know unbelievers that give. I mean, I, I think um, you all know about the billionaires tax, right? Wealthy people in the United States who give their fortunes away. Now, let me say this. First of all, praise God. I don't have billions of dollars to give away. And so we're sitting here thinking, well, it does, does it take the spirit to give your money away? No, it doesn't. But notice what Jesus says makes Christian giving different from unbelieving giving. 
Jesus says what makes Christian giving is that we give to our enemies. I don't know a believer, I don't know an unbeliever who have billions of dollars willingly give their money to people who they are at enmity with. But the Christian is called to do that. Notice what Jesus says about forgiveness. You know, I hear the testimonies of atheists and unbelievers all the time. They said, yes, I've forgiven this person or that person. But the power of the gospel says we, we don't forgive just for forgiveness sake, but we forgive our enemies. Because it takes the power of God to forgive someone who is diametrically opposed to you. Even he attacked the religious leaders. It takes, doesn't take um, much power to do what's moral when someone is looking. If someone is looking at us, it's obvious that we can act the right way or do the right things. But Jesus says the true mark of a Christian and a Christian mind are those who do it when no one is looking. When they go into their prayer closet. When they give in secret. William Templeton, a well-known Christian Anglican priest, once said this, your religion is what you do when no one is looking. That takes the power of God. That takes the power of God. When no one else is around, what do you do? It takes the power of God to be faithful. Now, I always leave you with a big takeaway. So here's the big takeaway. And I don't want you to miss this. If you're a believer in here today, give glory to God for his amazing grace that has pulled us out of darkness into light. Notice what 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we've been talking about all week. That without the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no way you can think and act like a Christian. What is the calling for the Christian then? It's to pray for those who do not have the mind of Christ. It's not to make fun of them or denigrate them. And please don't hear me saying that somehow the Christian mind is smarter or better than unbelievers. No, there are plenty of unbelievers that are smarter than me. That's not the point of this sermon. The point of this sermon is to remind us that the Christian mind is a mind that is the recipient of the life and peace that can only come by being in union and communion with Christ. And if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, this contrast should be a wake-up call for you to examine your life. I remember the day right after I got saved. The Lord saved me. I went to work, walked in, and a young lady looked at me and she said, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, nothing's wrong with me. And she said, why do you have that goofy look on your face? You met someone, did you? And I said, yes, actually I did. And she said, well, what's her name? And I said, actually, it's a he. 
And she said, oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I said, you don't understand. His name is Jesus. See, what that young lady saw is a stark difference between how I was before Christ and how I was after Christ. Almost in an instant, the lights came on and everything was different. Beloved, if you are a Christian, remember that feeling. Never let it go. Never let it go. It's the most glorious thing you can do. And if you're not a believer and you've never experienced that, come and taste and see that he is good. He is good. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, I'm thankful that you've provided us a new mind, a new heart, a new existence because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can stand and proclaim the goodness of the Lord. We have a message to tell the world. Not only is there no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, but there is mental clarity, life for those who are in Christ Jesus. That there's life and peace, that there's joy, that there's a new way of thinking and looking at the world that is unique and beautiful and amazing and wonderful. We don't have to be ashamed of the Christian mind. No, instead, we should put it on display. Because as Paul so wisely said, it is evidence of the power of God unto salvation. It is the fruit of our justification. May we as believers remember that, and may we as believers live in light of that. In Jesus' name.